Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. What I've seen is for myself and for my friends that have been really successful, when you check off the list, you add more to the list. First, it was a house, then it was a condo, then it was, you know, the trips to Maui, and then it becomes, you know, one country club isn't enough, I got to have two, I got to have this, I got to have that. Oh, and I think that's, you know, the space race I look at, I go, is what's really going on here? You know, and I don't pretend to know, it looks to me like it's really hard to be happy with money that I'm going to leave this planet and go find one that, you know, I don't believe that's a strategy that's going to work. I think we're going to live with the one we got and being happy first. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hello, welcome back to the Mindful Money Podcast, where we ask our guests about the intersection of well-being and financial success. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Dr. Eric Holsapple. Eric is a successful developer and entrepreneur with LC Real Estate Group in Loveland, Colorado, who's used mindfulness to transform both his life and his business. He's got a PhD in economics. He's been in the real estate business for 40 years. He taught real estate at CSU for 20 years. He's been practicing yoga and meditation for 30 years. Just for our listeners, that's five years longer than me. He works with people to merge business and mindfulness as a catalyst for changing lives. He's the founder of Living in the Gap. And today we want to talk about his new book out next month, Profit with Presence, 12 Pillars of Mindful Leadership. Eric, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm delighted to be here. You bet. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Here we go. Here we go. So first, is Loveland, Colorado home? And are you connecting from there right now? Yes, it is home for me. And I am connecting from there. Yeah. Just an hour north of Denver. Yeah, I know. I love my wife and I looking at Denver area as our retirement home at some point. So I'm aware. It's a great area. Absolutely. Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Maine. I came okay. out here to go to Colorado State when I was in my young, early 20s. And never left? No, that's not true. I got kicked around a little bit in the 80s. I'm old, but I came back. <laughs> okay. I actually was in Los Angeles for two years in 86 to 88, and then got transferred to Boston, and which was close to home, met my wife. We got married there, and then I decided to come back out here in the early 90s and get my PhD in economics and start teaching. So. And I convinced my wife to come out. It didn't take much. We just took a trip out, and she said, yeah, that's a nice place. We go to Maine every summer, so I kept a place there on the lake where I grew up. Oh, nice. So, yeah, so, it is nice. 
When you were growing up and throughout your travels, more so when you were younger, did you learn any lessons about money or entrepreneurship, intentional lessons like parents taught you, or is this all just learned happenstance? You know, my dad was a football coach and then superintendent of schools, and he ran a summer camp in the summers. And we learned to work, you know, from the time I can remember anything. It was 10 cents an hour, picking up this, doing that, cleaning toilets, collecting trash, raking campsites. And he was really good with money. My mother was not that good with money, but my dad was. So I learned a lot of lessons. He was a lot more conservative than I am with it, but he was a natural businessman. And then I think I just, I have an entrepreneurial gene that even then, you know, I ran the camp store when I was seven or eight years old. You know, I could just talk to people and sell. And I mean, I was just, I was kind of natural in business. The only one of my, I have three brothers, the only one of my brothers that are really, maybe my one brother is, but that just comes as natural to me. So it's instinct too. Did you, I mean, you were very clear, dad was good, mom was not. Was there a lot of tension around that or no tension? Or was I can remember a story one time. My mother was quite a, my mother was where I got my spiritual bent from. She was just present, you know, she didn't meditate or any of that stuff. She just was, you want to bake a cake or take a walk? Let's do it. But, you know, and I'll never forget. My dad was just livid one time that she bounced a check. And my mother said, Don, she said, your job's to make the money. My job's to spend the money. And the looks of that checkbook, I'm doing my job, and you're doing your job. <laughs> she wasn't a big spender. She was wonderful. But anyway, so she wasn't terrible at money. But anyway, that wasn't her gig. It was my dad's gig. So. Yeah. Are there any of those childhood experiences, you know, work in the camp store, making change, those kind of things that sort of become integral to your money story? Or have you sort of done work on your money story? Both, I think. I mean, what it instilled in me is, you know, I'm going on, I get to get Medicare this year. I'm going to be 65 and I could retire, but I love to work. I just learned at a young age to work and enjoy work. And I've looked at, you know, particularly like during COVID, I had a few months there just looking at myself. And then I said, you know what? Work's not so bad. I love the people I work with. I love to work. And I, as, you know, as long as I can and be balanced and take some time to do the things like we go to Maine every summer and, you know, I get to take some trip. Well, not COVID, I didn't, but get to take some trips and whatnot that I enjoy work. So, that was it. I would guess how I work is, is transformed. You know, my story is I got out with an MBA in my early 20s and went into real estate and was immediately successful. I worked for an Australian firm. They moved me to Los Angeles and I went on and I was really successful, but I wasn't healthy. You know, I took up smoking. I was drinking too much. I traveled all the time. One year it was 50 weeks. You know, I was 50 pounds overweight. And, you know, I remember stepping on the scale, looking to the mirror and says, you got to make some changes, man. You ain't going to be here very long. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, shortly after that, I found yoga. And that was my entry into mindfulness. And, you know, for years it was, oh, I'd also say the next thing that happened after that was my brother and my dad were pretty estranged. She's a poet, my oldest brother. My dad was pretty conservative business guy. He's a school teacher, but he's really at his heart was a businessman. <laughs> and I just watched my brother through meditation come back to my dad and when he opened up my dad opened up and I was like I got my family back because mm -hmm. when you know if you ever been involved when you this people in the family aren't hitting it off it affects everybody yep. it isn't just them <laughs> so I said yeah I'll try it and I tried meditation and for years I did it 
you know, closet meditator. I didn't, you know, say to anybody was meditating or anything. I just was doing it for probably almost 10 years. And, you know, then it started having opportunities at work that I became someone that people would talk to. Because for a long time, I didn't slow down enough to be, you know, I was just going to be someone somebody talked to. And then I can remember the first conversation. I had a friend here, Rollin, who had got served divorce papers and came and talked to me. What do you do? And I shared with him some of the stuff I'd been doing because my marriage had some low points, too, that I'd worked through. And then it just started one after another. You know, it just became some opportunities for to share mindfulness with people. We started a seed group where we just had a monthly meeting where we read a book and practice. And it was a couple of us that got started. And, you know, six months later, the room was full. Yeah. And it just started morphing itself at work. It's so I don't know how ubiquitous this is, but the, you know, the story of your early years, working hard, no balance, gain and weight, you know, meeting, 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 travel, same story for me, same exact story. Eight years, just grindstone, 12 hours a day, six days a week, half day on Sunday, like insane. I put on 90 pounds. <laughs> you twice as successful as I am. I know. <laughs> I put on 90 pounds. And I, if for me, the wake-up call wasn't looking in the mirror. It was seeing my two-year-old run around and then knowing that I had another one in the oven. I got to fix this, right? I wonder how ubiquitous that is and how quickly for you did that change come? Okay, I'm overweight. I got to change something. And then what was the process? How did you start that? Yeah. You know, it was a moment in time I got trans. I was working for the Australians and they loved to travel. They were coming around and so they loved to meet on Sunday, on Saturday. They didn't care. It was, let's be in Houston on Sunday. Oh, great. You know, and I was single. Like, I mean, I wasn't dating. <laughs> and they transferred. They had problems with a company in Boston. It was a New York Stock Exchange real estate company. And I had done successful everywhere else for them. They said, hey, would you come to Boston? Actually, I was landing from Los Angeles. I wanted to move back to Denver. I had In those days, it was a white paging telephone. Do you remember that? I don't know how old you are, Jonathan. Absolutely. Do you remember those? Yep. There weren't cell phones. I had a white paging telephone. I got a call. They said, could you grab your bag and come to Boston? So I moved to Boston. I went to Boston first, and I had a roommate in California that sold almost, she the ship what they could ship, and they sold the rest of it. So I moved to Boston. The good news was there were enough problems in town that I didn't have to travel, so mm. I could stay put. And I just, I had an apartment. My mother came down from Maine, helped me outfit it, and I bought a scale. I stepped on that thing, and I knew, I mean, my tie wasn't tightening, my belt, but I just had, and I wasn't going to the gym. There weren't scales in the hotels that I was going to. You know, so I really didn't know what it was, and it was a shock moment for me. When I saw that scale, it was like, holy God. And I also had, you know, I knew I wasn't very healthy, and I was drinking too much and all. So it was like that. I stopped drinking for a bit. I lost 40 pounds. I started running, which I was always a track guy, but I hadn't exercised in five years, you know. I started back up, and I quit the job. You know, I just, I ended up working out that I was, well, the company was going to go into bankruptcy and they said, we'd like you to be CEO. And I said, you know, I got another idea. I'll be CEO of Hosapple Development and I'll consult with you. You can find someone else to be CEO because I just doesn't sound like a real career builder to me. And did you <laughs> anyway, move, to, move back to Loveland at that moment or did you no, do it in Boston for a while? I, actually, I moved to Portland and consulted for him. It was Portland, Maine. was just a couple hours north. I started dating my wife, who was from that company. I met her there. And when I left, we started dating. 
we got married in Portland, and I convinced her to, we had our first child in 91, and shortly thereafter, no, got married in 91. 93, had a baby and moved back to Loveland. Moved to so Collins, actually, Colorado State University, and started school. So that's 30 years ago. And then in the ensuing 30 years, I, wow, right? <laughs> it is, isn't uh, it? <laughs> all is. the that's success, surreal. <laughs> real estate development, all the success. I don't think we need to touch on the success so much, but just give us the idea about you know what you built and then yeah. you transition that into this thing, Living in the Gap, which I adore. I love the idea. Awesome. And I want to, so you built this great success and then you were like, I want to do something else. I want to give something back. So t- tell us about that transition. Yeah. Well, I think inside Jonathan, I knew I went back to get my PhD and I was in the university and I was an entrepreneur and I could see the bureaucracy. And also I liked money. I mean, I like to ski, I like to travel, I like to do things. And I just said, so I arranged and I got a job at the university adjunct, which paid nothing, basically, you know, a couple of grand a year. And I went to work developing. My skills were primarily commercial real estate shopping centers. And I ran into a partner, Don Morostaga, who was more residential, did horizontal land development. I added the financial skills to him that he was lacking and he you know, showed me, you know, how to run a sewer line because <laughs> I was a finance guy. You know, I grew up with a shovel in my hand, so it didn't take too much. But and we just hit this Colorado at the right time. And, you know, we had six or eight developments going. And then I landed a couple of shopping centers that we did, you know, that most of the time people would come in from out of town and do them. But I'd had enough national, international experience that I could talk with corporate and work, you know, I had lawyer contacts and all that. So we did them ourselves. So we opened, uh, you know, a pretty major shopping center in 99 and did a lot of other smaller developments. And the whole time I taught at the university. And that's how we built LC Real Estate Group. I'd take, I'd have interns and say, you want to come intern? They'd work 10 hours, you know, or 15 hours a week. Now four of them are partners here that started wow. in interns and those kind of things. So and I always taught, and my partner Don was always on nonprofits and those kind of things. We did a lot with uh, affordable housing developments with the Housing Authority and Habitat and on Habitat's board. And I just saw, and we had a law firm in Denver, Brownstein Hyatt, and I watched how they were on all the nonprofit boards and did good things, but also business came from it. And I coined in the book phrase, not I didn't coin it, but I discovered a, it was called the procession effect, which came from Buck Leinster Fuller quite a while ago. He's an old architect, but it's just, you know, the world works at 90 degree angles. And every time I went, I mean, I was in the university because I wanted to teach and I really thought I'd burn up if I just did business. So I needed to do better things. I was a good businessman, but maybe too good. I couldn't just do business. And I ended up knowing everybody in the state, you know, Every bank, every real estate firm, every, you know, so it happened. It wasn't intentional, but it dramatically helped my business because I was a trustworthy person. I was a good developer and I was really well connected. I knew the best students. I helped place them at the best firms. And I had a conversation with three of them last night about living in the gap, you know, it's knocking it down in Denver. And it was just phenomenal. And it had nothing to do with me going in and saying, this is a strategy. It just good things happen when you do good things, I find. Yeah. So tell us what is Living in the Gap, the mission and the vision? Yeah. Well, first of all, the gap is we work on a little separation between thought and who we really are. And we have some 6,000 thoughts a day. So there's not generally, if we don't foster it, much of a gap between when one thought stops and another one starts. 
But I find that's where peace and joy and happiness reside, in those little moments of stillness and silence. And that thought is where stress and anxiety reside. Now we need to think, but 90% of it's repetitive. So we don't need to be thinking as much as we think we need to be thinking. <laughs> I guess that's a little bit of an oxymoron. But So living in the gap is having it all. You know, I just found that I think that people can live the life of their dreams, that this idea that spirituality and business are at odds is a mistake, that mindfulness is primarily focus. And I have found myself personally and for others that you get less done, you get more done in less time if you're focused, that mindfulness is actually a complement to work. And that people that try to squeeze it in the mornings or at night and you know ignore mindfulness during the day, I think you're tired. And it's not as pretty. Now, I don't think you have to tell everybody, hey, I'm, you know, I'm this super duper meditator, you know, aren't I cool? I don't think you got to do that. I think you can just be private about it. And if you feel like sharing, sometime you can share. But it's just a different way of being and a different way of approaching things. And I find this success. Well, I tell you, Jonathan, maybe you've seen, I mean, when I started reading all the Buddhists and the Hindu texts and everything, the first thing I said, oh my God, I got to renounce all my possessions. You know, and find this enlightened state. Screw that. And I didn't say that out loud. I was like five years reading this stuff going. I struggle with that still. I, struggle. I don't want to do that. It's not. So I still struggle with that. I think this is an important thing because yeah. there's this idea that once you see the problem, if you know the solution, you can't unsee the problem. And so I see that somebody needs food and I feel like I should give it. I can. I have the means. I can give it to them. But there's always this underlying you know, I've worked so hard. I want to maintain this. And I do think there's a constant struggle, a mindful, a very mindful struggle about giving versus keeping. And I've solved that for myself. You know, I studied yoga and I went through Kripalu and Western Mass and did their, you know, all the yoga training. And it was phenomenal because there were some folks there that really knew the ancient traditions. And they talked about, no, there's householders and there's renunciants. Renunciants give everything away. They beg for food. They go sit on the mountaintop. And they've renounced the standard life. But householders have a different kind of enlightenment. I mean, you don't, I mean, whatever that word is. You don't have to, you know, I found, I've coined, you know, affluence increases influence. I, we, my partner and I endowed a chair at Colorado State University today. That's a scholarship fund. We, you know, there's some, I don't know. It's a lot of money that scholarships kids, you know, we did things for a habitat. We've done, you know, yep. living in the gap wouldn't be there if I didn't have some affluence. So I think the false thing is that you say we have a capitalist system without mindfulness because capitalism without mindfulness and without democracy, which I, we probably won't go there, but without the, some of these things just ends up being three or four people having all the chips. Right. I think giving back is what makes capitalism work. You know, for people to go and do things and give of themselves is why it'll work. I and totally agree. I don't think everyone else agrees. I think that's where you get yeah. so much pushback, you know, to, on capitalism. Yeah. I don't think it's because capitalism. I think there's capitalism gets tarred and papered. Like there's the straw man argument often get put up against capitalism. And, and I think it's the greatest system in the world. But right. it needs, it can't be in a vacuum of just every, you know, the best people get all the gold and they'll give you, you know, I just think there's ways that it works. If through mindfulness, I'm naturally a more compassionate and generous person. Yep. Now, that isn't something that came naturally to me, okay? I didn't just, I mean, it came, it was fostered and it grew. I mean, so, it made me a better person and a happier person. And more wanna, successful, to be honest. 
I want to read something from your book really quick. And this is something I pulled out that I think says a lot now. So, and I'll develop it in just a second. So culture has taught us we have to go to the right schools, do the right things, get the hard job. And then someday we get to be happy, successful, secure, content. And you say, it's a lie. We can be happy now. So first of all, just yes, absolutely. And then second, how important is it to understand that the cultural prescription right school, right job, work hard, more income, you know, grow, 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 fast work, 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 doesn't lead to well-being, fulfillment, and happiness. What, I think that we're sold this. And I think that the culture of social media sold it even, sells it even harder. How important is it to wake up to that lack of truth first? Night and day. Yeah. I mean, just look at the government's prescription of let's increase the GDP. That's going to solve everybody's problem. Let's just, you know, Bhutan has gross national happiness. You know, we have gross national product and there's nothing. I'm an economist. I love economic development. I think it makes, you know, everything easier, but it doesn't mean we're happy. I mean, what I've seen is for myself and for my friends that have been really successful, when you check off the list, you add more to the list. First, it was a house. Then it was a condo. Then it was, you know, the trips to Maui. And then it becomes, you know, one country club isn't enough. I got to have two. I got to have this. I got to have that. Oh, and I think that's, you know, the space race I look at. I go, is what's really going on here? You know, and I don't pretend to know. It looks to me like it's really hard to be happy with money that I'm going to leave this planet and go find one. that You know, I don't believe that's a strategy that's going to work. I think we're going to live with the one we got and being happy first. So that's why I say is I don't think the happiness will come because we think it's here and then the goalpost moves. Oh, it's bigger. It's bigger. It's oh, and I now I got to have a fence and I got to have guards. You know, I got and then I'll be happy. So, you know, Sean Archer's got a great book. Have you read his Happiness Advantage, Sean yep. Archer? That's yep. great. And it's just we're running an 8-week program with it here, a corporate mindfulness program coming up in January. Happiness will make you more successful. You know, we do a visualization exercise in our programs. It just, you know, shows you achieving your goals. And then how do you feel? And everybody goes ecstatic, you know, unstoppable, successful, happy. What's changed? Just your mindset. Mindset. (laughs) And the thing I coach and teach and mentor is who do you want to call this person that's happy and makes you feel better? Or the person that's trying to be happy, the person that's successful or wants to be successful, the person that's content or he wants to be content, which means he's discontent. Right. So I just say you can be happy now. And that's why I say you can have it all. You can be happy and still go in and get the condos and the car. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of it. You know, I just say don't just don't think your happiness is residing in it. Sure. Right. You'll get some of your desires filled and. Those kind of things, but that's an insight. We all know people that have nothing that are so happy. Yes, <laughs> you reference Bhutan in that. So I think this gets us into the book. And now, great, I'd love you have a very interesting structure in the book. You know, there's the pillars, but before the pillars and after the pillars, it seems like framework, pillars, application. Yeah. Is that? Can you kind of yeah. describe yes. how you came up with that? Yeah, well, because in the pillars, I just it takes a perception to live that, to understand, and I'm not saying it's absolute truth because the state of consciousness is not a, you know, a scientific fact. No one, they're not agreeing on exactly what it is. But for me is that I create 
my reality, you know, that just lay out that I have a mind, but I'm tied into a larger universal mind and that I create the universe and together we create the universe. And from that perspective, I take control of my journey. You know, it's not like something is just given to me. It's how I view things. Now, you can go out there in the world, I can tell you, there's a lot of bad stuff out there, you know. And if I focus on that, I can get very negative and very and run a scarcity mindset. But my experience is if I don't go down that road and I focus more on what's working, what's going right, gratitude for what's happening, my mindset changes and I see more things to be grateful for. So from that mindset, the pillars make a lot of sense. Like, for instance, pillar two is finding your purpose in life. From Eckhart Tolle, who is someone I love, says, you know, you have an inner purpose and an outer purpose. My inner purpose is to awaken, to notice that I'm a conscious being, not just a robot, just making GDP and making widgets and, you know, filling up the checkbook and paying taxes. That I'm actually a conscious being with a soul and boom, you know, from there, everything changes. My outer purpose is what I do. I'm on a podcast with you. I'm running Living in the Gap. I'm building a real estate firm or I'm teaching at the university. My outer purpose is just what I do. But with presence, I can show up to that outer purpose in a certain way, which is really unstoppable. If I show up to something fully focused and present to it with the motivation, I'm, you know, I can get a lot done. So I want to, I agree with everything that you said. And I've had lots of conversations. Yeah, I should just say I'm in Berkeley, California. I've yeah. had lots of conversations with folks that would ask me this question. And so I'm going to ask you the question. Right. Jonathan, they would say, and so Eric, I'll say, it's from a place of incredible privilege. You can say things like change your mindset and it'll change your life. When you are in abject poverty, when you are you know, underneath, when you're just treading water, you're about to drown. It's much more difficult. So how do you, what do you say to somebody, you know, you're very successful. I'm pretty successful. You know, we have gotten incredible privileges in our lifetimes. What do you say to somebody that hasn't had those same starting points, hasn't had the same starting blocks? Well, two things. First, I would say is, am I able to do these things because I'm successful or am I successful because I look at the world a different way? You know, I've always been willing to invest in things and put more money in things and even borrow money I didn't have to promote a development. I've signed my line, my name on the line to things that I had no idea how I was going to pay back. None. Other than confidence in myself that I'd figure it out or accepting the downside, you know. So one is I think that the mindset is also part of the success. Sure. The other is, if you look at studies like from Richie Davison out of the University of Wisconsin in the book, The Altered Traits, he and Dan Goldman had the book Altered Traits, where they studied the monks, you know, and happiness, and they don't have anything. I mean, these studies that they're finally getting about the effects of mindfulness, well, for years we didn't really have, but they're finally getting them. The studies they're happening from are people without anything. So I just, I would say to you, you know, my premise is you don't have to be poor to be happy, but you don't have to have money to be happy either. Right. You're separating the two but, issues. Economics yeah. and happiness are different issues. Oh, totally. And yeah. I want both. Now, I'm not saying that I wouldn't miss the money. 
I can't say that with a straight face. You know, I enjoy my life. I really yeah. do. And I'm willing to share it and help others to have a great life. Where I differ is I think everybody can. Yeah. You know, I, I, maybe everybody can't be a real estate developer and build, you know, it's different mind, different abilities and all that kind of things. But I believe that with a different mindset, the whole world can live out of poverty. Right. We don't need to have homelessness. Yeah. Now, a, as, as long-term phenomena, at least. I think that we'll always have... I mean, the question today, media question today for the last couple of years has been just vast inequality. And I don't want to get into the discussion of the data because the data is often yeah. tweaked one way or the yeah. other, right? But I think that we'll always have inequality. And the inequality exists regardless of the yeah. system you're in. It exists. What, and so the question is, and I had a conversation recently about the micro and the macro. It's the, what can I do? The macro could actually help out for sure. We could make changes as a culture to help people out and get people yeah. a leg up. But I can't do anything about that. So I can work on the micro. And I think when I think about living in the gap, you're talking about what can I do? What can I do? So what are some of those things that we can do individually to sort of boost ourselves? Yeah, I say world transformation starts with me. That was a transformational moment for me. I started waiting. I was telling the book that I'm taking a run in long San Francisco. And I step over a homeless person. I go, why don't they do something? And my inner voice, as I've been working on for a long time, came back and said, why don't you do something, you know? And so for me, I'm training professionals to have a different life because you find successful people that aren't happy, you know? So I'm training successful people. There's a group down this morning, five or six from program that I'm running on a thing called Food for Thought in Denver. They go out, they're committed for nine months to go and deliver food so the Denver public school system has foods on the weekend. They're the kids, they find that by Monday, they're getting fed during the week, but they don't have it on the weekend. And by Monday, yep. they're dull again. So they're doing that. Those kind of things, those grassroots micro kind of things make a huge difference. Huge. They make a huge difference to those kids. And they make a huge difference to the people doing it in two levels. One is your mindset changes. From You start living from gratitude, which... You know, and Dr. Ammons and some of the other shows, I mean, gratitude is an instant low-hanging fruit of just changing your whole mindset, your happiness. Your, you know, you, yes, I am a big receiver of things in the world. I'm very grateful for that. You know, it changes you so that you can be happy at the level that you have versus waiting, like we talked before, waiting till some future goal is met. And then magically, oh, now I'm happy. Well, if you make it. And then probably the goalpost changes and you want more, right. most likely, one of the two. So I think those micro things are huge. First of all, if, what if all the professionals were out doing something and giving back a little bit? I think it's better than cold calling for business because you meet people a whole nother level. I mean, you get the car warranty call. How long are you on there? You know, click, you know, whatever it is. You get a, I have an aversion to a cold call. Now, we have to do them. I'm not saying that it's not a role for them or anything else. I mean, we do a little everything in business. If we're successful, we, I say, if you want to do the right thing, try everything. You know? That's right. That's but what if everyone was out just doing a little bit? Not a lot, but if everybody said, what if I move the needle just a little bit? You know, And I want to serve world hunger, but I don't have to do that. But I could join the food bank. I could help a family for a year, another family for a year. I could do those. But if everyone was doing that little bit, the mindset would shift. First, it would matter. It would add up to a lot, right? A lot of good things happening in the world. And secondly, it would change the mindset. 
to one of abundance versus one of scarcity. Yes, I know inflation and all those things, but you know what? I could help a family out for a year and still be fine. And a lot of us could do a lot more than that. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that, and it happens every day. I mean, you've talked about what you've done. You know, My wife and I do things as well. All of my clients are active and giving back, but that doesn't make the headlines. Like no one, these yeah, people are- all- But it's what'll get us there. It's yep, not going to exactly. be, it's how we'll get the votes for the macro. If right, enough exactly. people are doing micro things, they're going to start saying, oh, geez, you know, we could solve world hunger, huh? If we had a little mindset shift. I mean, we have the mindset shift that if we, and I know we don't want to go here in the podcast, but I'll say it quick, that if we give somebody something, we're just going to be taken advantage of and they'll be, you know, will be used. If we give, you know, how, like I did a lot of work with the homelessness here for a while. Housing first is one of the things, but there's a whole group that feel, and I know there's drugs and there's all kinds of other counter arguments. So I'm not just saying it's a one point pony, but I've run two liquor stores. Homelessness is terrible for business. You got to step over them to get in. People don't want to go in. So there's a business argument to say, this is bad for business. First of all, and we have a joblessness problem. I mean, we don't have enough employees. Somehow there's got to be a way to figure out <laughs> you know the issue long term and it's not gonna but it's gonna come from generosity and gratitude more than it's gonna come from scarcity mindset and so right. i think that is a micro issue that we have to work one-on-one block and tackle get more people to shift and say you know and just to believe it is solvable that'll be huge and i think that we have to add the compassion piece in there too we have to actually care about the people yeah. that Which, are suffering right to me, that's consciousness. Yep. If I'm conscious, then I'm connected to them, right? We, when you see that, because you can be, you can look at that, and I've done it for years, and not be connected to it, and just, you know, it's just what is. Boom, I'm over here. That's really but easy. With more slowing down with some consciousness, you actually, when someone looks in your car window, you go, "That's a person." Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it shifts for you. Yep. You may still feel, you know, giving them money is not the right thing to do, and that's fine. It may be another format or whatever. I'm not saying just giving things is the answer to everything either. It's complicated. There's no it question is. about it that. Is. But having the compassion, which is one of the foundations of mindfulness, and a belief that these problems are solvable. If I believe they're not solvable, they aren't. Right. So real quick, how do you define mindfulness? And we talk about the different elements and the foundation, but what is mindfulness to you? Focus. Okay. <laughs> Number one is, it's can I focus on what I choose to focus on and notice when I go away? Can I focus on what I, can I fill my mind with what I've chosen to focus and not? And the real thing is, you know, business is so good at stealing our, I love business. I mean, we're so good at stealing attention. It started with advertisements and sublineal messages and now we got social media to grab it. I mean, we're great. It's an individual awareness and choice to say, I'm taking it back. I'm going to, can I focus on what I choose to focus on to me? And there's longer definitions of mindfulness that are correct. But to me, if you want to be simple and that's for business argument, to me, it's focus. Can I focus on what I choose to focus on? How do you practice mind? What is your practice of mindfulness? Well, I mean, it starts with an intention an awareness and intention and You know, I mean, one of the things is, I mean, I don't think that everybody has to meditate. You know, I I would love it if they did. Right. (laughs) I don't think it's going to happen right away. But, you know, and if we had a a lot of extended time in nature, I mean, we're just so nature void, you know. 
my boys struggled growing up and they ended up going on a wilderness excursion, which changed their lives. Just, you know, going out and just being no phones, no computers, and just being with nature for, you know, a handful of weeks. It was amazing. So, but for, in our busy professional world, you know, to me, meditation is a keynote for me. Getting into my body with some, I mean, it doesn't have to be yoga. Some people are adverse to that. But when I get in, like, to me, if I can get in and notice my body stretching, my mind slows down. Yep. So when I get in there and notice it somewhere else and or for meditation, my, if I focus on, I do simple breath meditation. When I focus on something else, my mind slows down. If I focus on my brain, it speeds up. You know, if I just go there. So I need to have some practice, I think, you know, and but starting out a mindful walk without your phone where you're, you know, not on the phone, but you're actually looking at trees and looking at the this brook or whatever it is can be a great start. Yeah, noticing. You know? Just noticing. Noticing. Yep. Yes. So in a busy professional world, you know, one of the reasons I say mindfulness at work is because everybody struggles with time. But if we promote it at work it increases focus. We, it more than makes up for the amount of time it takes. Because I usually, you know, start people off with a couple minutes of meditation, maybe 10 minute total practice to get started. Because I find that if people try to do too long when it's busy, it's counterproductive. Because right. they get up and it's just how many people have you heard say, I tried it, I can't do that. Right. Well, you can't do it for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, when you start, you build I'm up 20 minutes and I've been doing it a long time, you know. So I go just a couple minutes, start slow, start noticing, have the intention, consistency as much as you can do it, and have that intention. Some account. And the other nice thing is at work is accountability partners. I mean, what a great thing to be coming in and be able to have a conversation with someone else you're working with. We spend, you know, so much more time at work than we do anything else. So, and I'd say, you know, the miracle of mindfulness at work because, you know, then I get it at work, I take it home. My spouse gets exposed to it. My kids get exposed to it. The school board gets exposed to it. The sports teams get exposed to it. You know, we have a guy here, Nathan, you know, runs out every day at four o'clock now. He's one of the most successful brokers in Northern Colorado coaching his kids' teams. And he's teaching them mindfulness things. You know, he's coaching them, baseball and basketball, but he's also using those techniques. And those kids are getting a, you know, he's not, I don't know what he's doing for sure, but I doubt he's sitting down meditating with them. But he is right. doing some mindfulness techniques where they're getting something from it. And he learned it here, you know. And he's now focused enough that he can leave at 4 o'clock and make his priorities, his family, and go coach the team. It's, so, cool. it's so cool. It sounds like you have in the office a formal meditation practice. Is that right? No. I mean, we have brought in mindful-based stress reduction. We did an eight-week yep. program here a number of years ago. Everybody's in a different place with it, you know, right. and everybody comes and goes and everybody isn't in it to the level I'm in it. But I can tell you what, when we changed the vision statement to mindfully creating community and it transformed the place to, you know, we do a thing called Coats and Boots where we do it here. We have a local supplier, Shields and Jacks help us get Coats and Boots and we every kid on free and reduced lunch in, in Loveland now, I believe it's everyone. If it's not, we're, well, that's our goal. We're getting close to it gets a free set of boots and coats, you know, if they need it for the winter that we run here. Those little things like that are just huge. Yeah. They're huge for the community and they're huge for our mindset. So it's not formal. We run a seed group. It's voluntary. Most all of our meetings are started with, usually call it centering. Okay. So we don't, you know, we don't try to 
I mean, most people are going to reverse to anything new. So we try to do it with, breathe, you know, listening to breath and breathing and doing those things. Our partner meetings, we start everyone with a meditation. Not long, five minutes or something, you know, just to get us in present moment. And the meetings go faster. They're more focused. And we don't fight. It's interesting, though, like with the greater team, it's more mm -hmm. voluntary. It's centeredness. It's like meditation light. And then as you move up the corporate structure to partners, it's formal. We're going to have five minutes of sitting before we start the meeting. Meetings are much. I think that's how you bring people in is you just bring, give them a little bit. And then as they develop, you give them a little bit more. As they do a little bit more, like you start with two minutes and you go to five, then you go to 10, then you go to 50, then you go to 20. Right. And I believe if you get over to 50% of the company, you've shifted it. Yep. Totally. You know, that even the ones that aren't meditating and whatnot are caught up in it and they're still doing things and they're more mindful because it's osmosis. It's just being around more people that are there than are not. And it's how you treat people. And they know that's how we treat people. You know, I have a question about one of the pillars that I want to get to Great. before we run out of time. And it's, so you talk about, I don't remember which pillar it is, but you talk about detaching from results. And so in business results, the bottom line, pretty basic, business requirements, you know, if you're going to be successful, you got to look at those results. How does a leader detach from results? Well, I believe when we meditate, that's what we're practicing doing. We're detaching from thought. So first of all, we do need the goals. And I also say in the book, you know, you're telling a leader he's going to, you know, change the world and not make his profit thing. I mean, he's not going to be the CEO for long. Right. You have to have a system that the CEO can actually have results. And so... I know I love the goals and we're doing in our program now whole goals and visioning and those things. And then after we set them, we work on detachment. So the goals are set there and we can check on them weekly or monthly or whatever. And if things aren't working, we make changes. But my daily job is to show up and be present and to be with the people and actually listen to people, the customers, listen to the other employees, whoever it is to be present and do those things. So when the thought comes up of profits, so when I'm meditating and a thought comes up, I say, just let it go. I don't say it's wrong. I don't try to stuff it out. I don't try to deny it. I just come back to my breath. So if I'm talking with you and the thought comes up to me, what about the bottom line? I'll say, thanks for sharing. Jonathan, what's the next question? You know, I just let it go because it is going to come up. It's yeah. not that it's not important. It's not that I don't care about it. And I better have regular times when I'm checking in on it, Right. Because otherwise, it will. I couldn't not know. It's in my DNA. I have to know what's going on. And that we're making, if we're not making money, you know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to close it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to do something. And if I, you know, so that's in my personality, in my business acumen. But I don't worry about it every day. I don't. You know, I have regular times that I check in on that. Regular meetings where that's where the focus is. How it's doing. Where we make changes. And then my job is to go about my business of my day. And I believe one of the biggest jobs of an executive is to connect with people, you know, to actually listen to them. And I can't listen to them if I'm always just worried about, oh, my God, that's 10 cents out of the results. I can't do that. So it's not we're ignoring results. It's totally just not. that the results are in a place where they're supposed to be. They don't infect everything, right? You're able to let right now I'm talking to somebody. I let profit yeah. go and I'm going to get to know this person yes. better. And then I'll do this in the executive session. Before I sign the contract, I'm going to look at the profit. Right, of course. <laughs> I mean, of course. Or I'm not going to sign it. <laughs> right, right. Right, I'm going to do something else. Yeah, and I think it's that profit is not a purpose or a vision. Right. Those are the natural result of having a useful purpose and vision. 
that's the natural result. And if you're not getting those profits, you need to shift a little bit, either from what you're doing or something else, because you won't be in business. And we need profits to have to make change. So this is, a, I love what you just said. Profits are not a purpose. I see, and maybe you see the same thing. I see tons of business people that say, what I want to do is I want to make money. What's the best way to make money? And those businesses, maybe they make money, but they're never happy at the end of that. Yeah. They don't fulfill a purpose. And I think that's really important to focus on. I think that's another 45 minute conversation. So I think I'm going to table that to the right. side. I've got a good question here. So there's a ton of noise out there in business and in life. And I want you to simplify it for us. Ask every guest to kind of do this. You're sitting on a plane, you know, you have a seatmate there that's asking you for advice. What is the one thing that you would suggest that they do that would lead to more personal and financial success? Be present. Actually be with the people you're with. You know, we're so busy, we don't actually notice people. And they're screaming to tell us things, you know, or afraid to tell us things. For me, for years, I was afraid to tell me things because I get pissed. <laughs> you know? Yep, I know. Yeah. <laughs> So I think being present is huge because that's focus and it lets me take in all the information that's out there. If I'm not and I'm just busy, I have a blinders on, this is where I'm going and I don't see the whole world of information that's out there. So, and it doesn't, when I say presence, I also mean focus. That's being focused. And if I choose to focus on the person I'm with at the moment or the division or my kids, you know, which is most of us, that's what we're most concerned about. That's why so, we're doing business in the first place. Put yourself, you're on that plane. Like you're 30 years old, yeah. you're flying to Boston from LA and you know, you're working hard, you're overweight, you're, all this stuff is happening that you just yeah. did. You, and somebody sitting next to you says, be present. How do you respond to that? And I don't think some, I'm asking because I don't think that's enough. I think what can they do? You're going to be like, yeah, whatever. That's great. I'll be present tomorrow. Right. But how, how do do what that? can I do? Slow down and go fast. You know, going, I mean, I run at 100 miles an hour naturally. I just do. I'm yeah. a cheetah if I had pick an animal. I, and so it, that's probably for me why I ended up where I am doing this is because I probably wouldn't be here. I probably would have burned up, right. you know. So it was necessary for me to find some tools to slow down. But I have found that the more, if I slow down a little bit and I'm more focused, I see more and see more opportunities that I never would see. Yeah. You know, if I'm just chasing this one goal after another. So even with that discussion on the plane, I mean, may not be possible in a minute. You know, I may share a book like The Happiness Advantage with them or something. I check this out, Great. you know, something that is a little more time because I don't, I mean, we're all looking for the cliff notes, you know, in this society. Where's the tweet that's going to change my life? Well, I got news for you. 180 words probably ain't going to change your life. I mean, maybe if it came from Jesus, I don't know. But it's mostly that's more of the problem is that we think, you know, our program, we have a nine month program. Most people go, it's, that's crazy. What are you doing in nine months? Well, I'm trying to change. I'm trying yeah. to set habits, you know, that are consistent with my commitments so I can actually keep my commitments. And those don't I mean I have found that bad habits I can set in 30 days, easy. Smoking, drinking, eating too much, great. But a good habit in, that's contrary to culture takes a while. You know, we don't, we aren't in an environment that supports a habit of mindfulness, most of us. That's why mindfulness at work is so important, because if we can get into a culture where it's supported, it's going to be 10 times easier than if I'm in a culture that says, oh yeah, after I make it, I'll take a walk, you know? Right. So I don't think it is a, you know, maybe a trip to Australia, you'd have a little more time, but... <laughs> 
Yes, I don't right. think it is a quick discussion, but maybe you can point them to a podcast or a book or a program or something and say, you know, this would be worth your time checking out. Not so much a thing that we're discussing. It's like, this is one thing that they have to apply, that they have to actually do the work on and do. I tell you one story that we had a guy, I did a lot of work with a group called Extraordinary Golf and it's Awareness Golf and whatnot. And we had one of the guys over to my house, Gary Lester is one of my mentors. And he was a transformational facilitator for a group for a long time and whatnot. And he's over to my house and I tried to get my wife to do this and that. And, you know, why don't we do this? And, you know, this workshop for that. And she looked at him. This is what I think in your plane trip, if you were this person, that you'd make a difference. She looked at him and said, where did you get your glow? He just had a glow. Like he didn't, you know, he was joy. He had joy at his being. He wrote down the workshop. Handed it to my wife. A month later, she's in it. You know? So it's who you are when you say what you say to the guy. Or are you somebody that actually paid attention to him? You know? Did you actually go, hey, well, how's your day? Or were you just another next busy executive trying to get to the next meeting? Which is, you know, well, try this. Or were you actually present for the person? Because if you're, you're when you're present with somebody, you change them. Yep. And they looked, so anyway, that story I say, because my wife looked at him and made a connection and said, I want what you got. Yep. I want to glow. I could have been another 10 years trying to get her to go to that workshop. <laughs> Would never gone. And so that, I love my wife. Flip that. side of that is what's one thing. So presence, I think yeah. is the one thing, right? What's yes. one thing that, you know, as business people were told, you got to think about this, that we should just ignore. That you can't care about the people you work with. Hear that executive level all the time. You're going to have to fire them someday. Don't mm-hmm. get too close to them. You might have to make a tough decision. We find some niceties about people, but we're afraid to get to know them. You can let somebody go compassionately if you have to. Care about them. But not caring about your people that you work with is like wasting half of your life. Yeah. And theirs. And then we wonder why they don't want to give us everything they got when the crap hits the fan. Because right. we don't care about them. We're just trying to get some. So that's something I would say, ignore that. The other one with my kids I ignored was, you know, you can't be friends with your kids. Baloney. I can be friends with my kids and still discipline them. I got three best friends, you know, baloney. Ignore it. I love it. So Eric, when does the book come out and where do people get it? Yeah, March 7th is the pub date. It's available for pre-sale on Amazon right now under Profit with Presence, the 12 Pillars of Mindful Leadership. Dr. Eric Holes Apple. And also on our website, there's links to it, livinginthegap.org, livinginthegap spelled out.org, along with our workshops and those kind of things that we have going. So, Just before we wrap up, I want to ask just a couple very personal questions. So, Great. so what was the last thing you changed your mind about? Oh, geez. It was recent. Business or personal? Doesn't. Last thing. Could be either thing. Gosh, that's I change my mind all the time. You know what's amazing about this work is I'm always from presence doing something contrary to what I think. And usually it's from generosity. Gosh, but I'm drawing a blank. The last thing I changed my mind about, well, I mean, I was going to cancel a lunch appointment today to go get my daughter's cat, but it ended up I didn't have to. I said, I can cancel my lunch and come get the cat because my wife wouldn't have to. Now that's not, you know, usually in business I would be saying, oh, gee, you know how important I am? I got to, oh my God. So I offered and my wife said, no, I got it, you know, but I said, no, I can reschedule lunch and go get the cat because my daughter's going away for the weekend and we're cat sitting. That's the last time. 
All right, cool. We'll give you a pass on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. Can you name a place that you visited that really had an impact on who you are today and what was the impact? Yeah, Thailand. Just, I love the people of Thailand, the food and just seeing another culture. And uh, yeah, Thailand changed me. It's just a different culture. I love it. How did it change you? Just more humanity. Just see people and that are, we just end up, you know, being so busy and having so little time for people and so little connection to go somewhere and you make a connection, even though the language is different and there's, you can't understand what they're saying, but they're there and generous. And I think that makes a difference when you just experience that. I'd say it's experiencing, I experience presence in people that a lot of times in America I haven't experienced until I had to be it myself. Maybe that's also because I was in a different environment and I slowed down enough to experience it. Because I'm sure here, the way I run, a lot of times it's there and I don't notice it. I mean, that's one of the things that people say you got to take it. When you're on a vacation, you got to take at least two weeks because that's how long it takes to slow things down, right? It does take Uh, some time. Hard to do that. Eric, I want to say thanks very much for coming on the Mindful Money Podcast. I appreciate the work you did. I wish you all the best with living in the gap. I think it's good stuff that you're doing. And we agree. Mindfulness is a key. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on. I wish you the best. Love your program. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.